Thank you, Paul. We do indeed need a bigger boat. That's what... Well, anyways, good morning, everyone. I just loved that. That was a great, great reminder from our, our beloved brother, Paul. So we're continuing our series this morning, One Mission, where we're talking about the kingdom of God and how we can expand that as a church family. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up with me to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22. And while we're talking about a building or a bigger boat, I want to talk to you guys about why we are even bothering with this fundraiser that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. So we're going to be talking about the next couple of weeks. What's the point in raising all of this money? Why not spend our money on other things like a new guitar or a new TV or a new car or whatever you're into that you'd rather spend your money on? Why spend it on a building? Well, I hope this morning that us studying this parable will give you a sense of why, a sense of why this matters, why it's important. I believe, and we believe at Coastal, that a permanent, nicer facility in a strategic location will be more effective for us as we seek to reach this community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the why. The building's not the church. We are. But the building is an effective tool for the church to use. And I hope this morning that this parable will help to motivate us with the prospect of seeing God's kingdom expanded here in Gloucester as a result of this new building. I told the first service a story about when we first started meeting here. So this, build, this wall right here didn't exist yet. This was just one big room. There used to be this divider. Anybody here remember that? Like this big divider. It's in the kids' area now that kind of partioned off this area from the kids' area. Well, right when we first started meeting, this, uh, this couple came to me after the service one week and said, hey, we were wondering if we could rent out the back area, rent out the garage. And I thought, okay, you know, well, we've renovated it. It's, it's pretty nice now. Maybe they want to have it for a party or a wedding or whatever. So I said, okay, well, what kind of an event do you want to have? Oh, no, no, no. Like we want, we work on cars. <laughs> and we were wondering if we could use that, like maybe on an off day to work on cars. I was like, well, you know, we're, we're a church building now. And they were like, oh, I mean, they'd made it all the way in here <laughs> to the building after a service. And you know, there, there might be some other stuff going on there. But, but first of all, they didn't even realize it was a church until I told them, and I'm not trying to bash this building. Man, God has done incredible things here. Amen? God has worked in a lot of people's lives here, and I don't want to downplay that at all. But we're convinced that a nicer facility and a strategic location will help us in our mission to make authentic followers of Jesus Christ. And the parable that we are talking about this morning is about a wedding. And personally, I love weddings. I am a big, cheesy romantic, and I've always found weddings to be beautiful and to be a lot of fun. You know, everybody goes all out at weddings. They wear their best clothes. They usually have great food. My wife and I had Scoots barbecue at our wedding, which, by the way, won best barbecue in Virginia. I don't know if you saw that. It's pretty awesome and well-deserved. Uh, there's great music. There's great dancing. Weddings are a time of great joy. But if you've ever been involved in planning a wedding, one thing that you know is really tricky is the idea of who do I invite? That's especially true if you're on a tight budget, so you're having kind of a smaller wedding like my wife and I did. You kind of have to start ranking your friends and relatives into categories of whose feelings do I care about hurting the least. It's kind of like, I'm going to date myself here. When you had MySpace back in the day, you had your top eight. And if you made it into somebody's top eight, that meant you were really good friends. But if you didn't, if you got pulled out of it, you got a call later in the day like, hey, what's the deal? It's kind of like that. When you're planning a small wedding, you've got to be really selective. My wife and I, like I said, we were having a small wedding and we were agonizing over decisions like, do we invite the cousins that we haven't seen in like five years because they're family and we feel obligated or do we invite just all of our friends that we see all the time? 
Like I said, it's a big game of whose feelings am I the least concerned about hurting when we're giving out wedding invitations. Well, this morning, I wanted to tell you all that you're invited to a wedding, and it's an awesome wedding. It's the wedding feast of the Lamb of God. And here's the best part. You're not just invited to attend. As the church of Jesus Christ, we are the bride. We get to be center stage at this thing. See, Scripture calls the church all throughout the Bible the bride of Christ. And we know from the end of the Bible that one day when Jesus returns, there's going to be a wedding feast that brings all other wedding feasts to shame. And guess what? Everyone is invited. But those whom the groom has invited personally will most certainly be there. So what are we doing as a church in the meantime while we're waiting for this feast? Our job is to deliver the invitations. Our job is to go into all the world and invite people to be a part of the feast. So that means in Gloucester County, it's our job to go down Guinea Road. It's our job to go down Hickory Fork. It's our job to go down Main Street. It's our job to go up north to Ark and to Woods Crossroads. And yes, maybe even to Matthews and Middlesex too. And invite everyone that we can find to be a part of God's kingdom, to be a part of this wedding feast of the Lamb. So let me give you my main point up front this morning. We are called to invite everyone that we can find to be a part of the kingdom of God. And those whom God has chosen will most certainly be there. So with this in mind, let's take a look at our parable together in Matthew chapter 22. We'll start in verse one. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. For in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do the work of convicting our hearts, of challenging us this morning, of encouraging us to be good and faithful stewards of this gospel that you have entrusted to us, to spread it to the ends of the earth. We love you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's take a walk through this parable and see what the Lord has to teach us this morning. But before we can jump into the parable itself, I'd like to give you guys a little bit of background. Matthew 22 comes right after Matthew 21. I had to go to seminary to figure that one out. And in Matthew 21, what happens is Jesus enters into Jerusalem on the last week of his life, and the people are hailing him as a king. They're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. He was the Messiah. He was the king. 
And as Jesus is coronated as king, what is the first thing that he does? He grabs a whip, he goes into the temple, and he starts flipping tables because he is disgusted by the corruption of the religious system of his day. And of course, the Pharisees, the leaders of the day, weren't too happy about this. So they come to Jesus in the middle of chapter 21 and say, who do you think you are? So Jesus does what he normally does. He responds with parables. He responds with stories designed to make a point. There are three here. It's a trilogy of parables, and all three of them are making this same basic point. The Pharisees, as the religious leaders of the nation of Israel, have rejected their Messiah. They have rejected Christ, and the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles. We know that's the case because it's how chapter 21 ends. Verse 43 says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And listen to this. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. And then the text goes right into the parable of the wedding feast. Seen in this light, I think the intention of Jesus behind this parable is a rebuke to the Pharisees and an announcement that the salvation that he has come to accomplish will not just go to Israel, but it will go to all the nations. And oftentimes people missed the point of Jesus's parables. They didn't know what he was talking about. They were just totally missed it. Not this time. The Pharisees knew exactly what Jesus was saying and they hated it. They were so furious about it that they conspired with the Romans to kill him. But this parable is a story that can be divided into four scenes. And I wanna walk through them together with you this morning. The first is this, the first invitation, or really the first set of invitations. The story begins with a wedding feast that a king is throwing for his son. This king has an all-consuming desire to honor his son, to glorify his son, to see people there to enjoy his son. So he sends out his servants to invite those that he's invited to the feast, but they didn't come. So then he sends them out a second time and he entreats them to come by telling them how awesome this feast is gonna be. He says that there's going to be slaughtered oxen and fat calves. In other words, there's gonna be steak, a lot of it, a lot of really good steak. There's gonna be music, there's gonna be dancing. This is gonna be an incredible party. And at this point, I want to highlight that the king is generous. The king is generous. He's not trying to stick to a budget with this wedding reception. He is going all out to make this the party to end all parties. And of course, as believers in Jesus Christ, this should remind us of the incredible generosity of God toward us. The salvation that God has given us is not a cheap salvation. God didn't get it off of the clearance rack. What the Bible says about our inheritance as believers is staggering. Just think about a few things. The Bible says that when we believe in Jesus Christ, we are co-heirs with Christ. We're gonna inherit the entire earth. It says that our suffering now, the worst thing that you could go through now, isn't even worth comparing to the glory of what God has in store for us in the future. On that day, there's gonna be no more crying, no more sin, no more sickness, no more pain it's never gonna come to an end. You know, there's one thing every great day has in common. Think about the best party you've been to, the best wedding you've been to, the best day that you've ever had. What all of them have in common is that they ended. This is never gonna end, this wedding feast. This infinite joy, infinite delight in the presence of God and of Christ 
will never, ever, ever, ever end. And maybe best of all, we will be sanctified enough to appreciate it because sin ruins everything. My heart, even the great days, get tainted by my pride and my fear and my own sinfulness in my heart. But we will be sanctified enough to truly appreciate all of God's blessings. The king has been generous with us and the inheritance that he has for us in glory is beyond our wildest imagination. And once we have grasped that, we can stop trying to cling to treasure in this world and live open-handedly with God and with others. But next, we see that the king is patient. He didn't give up after the first invitation goes nowhere. He sent out his servants a second time to plead with the invited guests to come to the feast. And you might miss out on how radical that would be if we don't actually think about what's going on here. This isn't just any normal wedding. This is a royal wedding. It's the wedding for the prince, for the son of the king. Some of you guys probably watched the royal wedding back in 2018 with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. I, I couldn't figure out if it was Markle or Merkel. I had to ask my wife for help with this one this morning. All of my pop culture references, I don't know what the heck I'm talking about. I've got to get her help with it. But 2018, the royal wedding, it was such a big deal that it was in the news for weeks. And I know people who are waking up at four o'clock in the morning to live stream that thing on Facebook to watch this wedding. It's a royal wedding. Now, can you be imagine, can you imagine being invited to a royal wedding personally by the royal family, all expenses paid, and turning it down, or better yet, killing the messenger, literally? That's what was happening here. But the king was patient. He invited them again and again. This reminds us of the patience of God toward us. Many of us believers in the room, if not most of us, probably didn't believe the gospel the first time we heard it. We probably heard it time and time and time and time again until one day God finally got into our hearts. And every time we hear the gospel as a sinner and we have the opportunity to respond, that is an act of patience and grace beyond what we can even imagine. But as we see in our parable, eventually that patience is going to run out. It's all right. It's a preacher's kid. You know how they are. But uh, love you, babe. The next scene in our story is about the rejection. The king sent out his servants twice to invite the people to come to the wedding feast, and yet they rejected his invitation twice. And the second time, this rejection becomes more serious, like I said. And there were two forms of rejection in this story. And I think those two forms of rejection are very common responses that unbelievers have to the gospel in our day. The first one is this. Some were apathetic toward the invitation. The text says that they paid no attention. Some went to their farm. Some went to their business. They said they were too busy. They'd already made plans. They weren't hostile to the king or his son. They didn't hate him. They just found it boring. They didn't care about them very much. Well, I think that this is the common response to the gospel and the spoiled, decadent culture that we live in today. I think that a lot of people basically just think that the gospel is old news. It's boring. Yes, it's this cool story about this guy named Jesus who went around teaching some nice things and maybe healed some people, and maybe he even did die and rise again. I don't know. But I got work on Monday morning. I've got more important things to worry about than all this stuff about the kingdom of God. So they were apathetic toward the gospel. They just didn't care. But this isn't the only response in the story. Some went even farther than that and were hostile to the message of the gospel. It says in verse 6, the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, 
and killed them. These were those who hated the king and were living as rebels to his authority. And these servants are the representatives of the king who have been given his message to go and to deliver to them, and they killed them. This section of the parable is virtually prophetic because this is exactly what happens once we get to the book of Acts. We see Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and 7, who was martyred for his faith for bearing witness to Christ by the Jews. They took him outside the city and stoned him. We see this routinely with the apostle Paul. As he would go forward and preach the gospel, he would be persecuted, stoned, every other thing. Every apostle except for John is martyred for their faith. As the gospel went forward, there was hostility. And yet even today, there are absolutely those who are hostile to the message of the gospel. While our culture isn't quite there yet, I definitely think there's a trajectory toward hostility toward the gospel, especially when it comes to Christian views on sexuality or the exclusivity of the gospel. These things are regularly seen as intolerant or in some quarters even dangerous for society. We can never forget either that we have brothers and sisters in Christ across the globe who are being persecuted and even killed for their faith every single day. As long as the gospel goes forth in the midst of a dark world, it will always be met by two things. It will bear fruit as people believe in Christ and enter into the kingdom of God, but it will also face hostility from the world and from the evil one. And as a result of this rejection, all were judged parable goes on and says that the king was angry, which is actually a relatively weak translation of the Greek. It really means that he was filled with rage or filled with fury. This wasn't just a slight annoyance or he was a little bit irritated. This is passionate, white-hot rage at those who would dishonor his son by rejecting his gracious invitation and then would even murder his servants. So we see the judgment in verse 7. It says he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city down. Again, this part of the parable is virtually prophetic because that's exactly what happened. In 70 AD, the Roman army, armies besieged Jerusalem. 1.5 million people were killed and the city was burned to the ground as a judgment for rejecting their Messiah. But this shows us today that God does not take a rejection of the gospel lightly. As unpopular as it is to say today, we have to be clear that rejection of the gospel brings the wrath of God. We have to love people enough that we share the gospel with to say, not with a smirk, but with tears in our eyes, that a rejection of the gospel brings about God's judgment. Well, at this point in the story, we might expect the king to just give up, just cut his losses. The people who were invited didn't come so you know what? We'll just do our own thing. We won't worry about them. We'll move on. But in his grace for those people and in his desire to see his son honored with a full wedding feast, he offers a second invitation. He called his servants, who, by the way, had to be terrified at this point. This doesn't seem like a really good gig anymore. The guys who keep getting sent out keep getting killed. But nevertheless, he calls them and he sends them again. But this invitation was different than the first. Instead of giving them a guest list of who to invite, he says this, the wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore, keep those two words in mind, go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. The second invitation is universal. 
He told them to go to the main roads. Some translations say highways and byways. The point here is the place where the most people are going to be populated. In Gloucester, that's Walmart. <laughs> right? I once heard somebody say, if you ever go to Gloucester Walmart and you don't see somebody you know, it's probably because they were hiding from you. But anyways, <laughs> go to the place where there's the most people and invite as many as you can find. He doesn't put a number or a limit on it. Go invite as many people as you can possibly find. And church, that's our job. That is our calling today. This is a parallel of the marching orders that we have for the church in Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission. And Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, the exact same words as the parable, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the mission that Jesus has given us to accomplish as his church. And that's why we exist as a church body here at Coastal. Does anybody know what our mission statement is here at Coastal? Anybody? Connect or serve is how we accomplish our mission statement. Yeah, to develop authentic followers of Jesus Christ. That's just another way of saying the Great Commission. It's just another way of saying we are here to make disciples in our community. The Great Commission is just another way of telling us to go to the highways and byways of this world and to invite as many people as we can find to be a part of this feast. And one of the things I love about this text, what I love about the Great Commission, is that it is bookended with the authority and the presence of Jesus Christ. Jesus starts by telling us that he is the one who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus is the true king of kings. He's the Lord of all creation. He is the sovereign one over everything. He is the boss. Nothing happens in this world that does not pass through Jesus's hands. The devil's not the boss. The political leaders in this world are not the boss. That's something we need to hear right now especially this year, Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth, Revelation 1.5 says. Jesus is the one that is ultimately in charge. And as the sovereign king promises to be with us as we accomplish this commission, even to the end of the age, we go forward in boldness. It's an enormous comfort to me that as we seek to obey this as a church, as we seek to be faithful, to make disciples, to teach, to baptize, to do all of these things, we are doing so with the presence of the sovereign King of Kings alongside of us. Church, we are called to go. And in particular for this group of people in this room, we are called to go here in this community in Gloucester County. I did some research for Pastor Sean for his sermon last week, and I wanted to repeat some of the data that I found. A survey in 2010 found that 60% of Gloucester County claims no religious affiliation whatsoever. Of the other 40%, only about half of them claim to be evangelical Christian, that is, Christians who believe the gospel. And of that 20%, only about half of them go to church with any kind of regularity. Translation, about less than 10% of Gloucester County has any connection to a local church. So let me put that in even more stark terms. Let me just take some cold water and splash it on your face this morning. Within 15 minutes of this building, there are tens and thousands of people who, if they died today, would go to hell. We need to let that sink in. We need to let that sober us a little bit 
Because church, we and the other churches in this community have a job to do. There are a lot of people who need to be invited to the feast. We are Jesus's servants who he has called to go and to invite to the feast. I want all of you guys to really be praying and thinking about who are my neighbors? Who are my friends? Who are my family members? Who are my coworkers that don't know Christ? Start praying for opportunities to talk to them about the gospel. We've got Easter coming up next month. I know people in the church world often kind of make fun of people who only come to church on Christmas and Easter, but we should see that as an opportunity, not as a joke. This is an opportunity to invite people who don't normally come to church to come to hear the message of the gospel. Start thinking about who we can invite, who I can talk to. And as it relates to our fundraiser, the only reason, and I mean the only reason, why we would buy this new building, why we would do this fundraiser, any of that is because we believe in the Great Commission. If I didn't believe in the Great Commission, I wouldn't give a dime toward that new building. But because I do, we are going to give sacrificially. We believe that a nicer facility and a strategic location will equip us and enable us to spread the gospel more effectively in this community. So guys, I've got two challenges for you this morning. Give and go. Give and go. We've been saying it many times, and we'll say it again. It's something like a slogan around here. It's not equal giving, it's equal sacrifice. It's not that everyone can or should give the same amount, whatever the Lord has laid on your heart. But we are convinced that this facility is God's will for us as a campus, and it's something that we are pursuing with all of our hearts. So I want you to be in prayer about how God would ask you to give toward this new building. And I would have you be in prayer about who God has laid on your heart to talk to about Christ, to invite them to church, to build a relationship with them for the gospel. So at this point in the parable, we get to the last scene of the story. We get to the feast itself. And the first thing we see about this feast is this. It's full. The feast is full. It says that after the servants have invited everyone they could find, the hall was filled with guests. So this is a parable. It's not an actual historical account of something that really happened. But I want to remind you that we do have a very real wedding feast to look forward to. It says in Revelation chapter 19, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. One day there's gonna be no more weeping, no more pain, no more sickness, no more sin, and no more death for the former things have passed away. This is the ultimate wedding feast that we have to look forward to as believers in Christ. And here's the amazing thing about it to me. There's not gonna be any empty seats. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ from before the foundation of the world, before God spoke the universe into existence, the table was already set and your name was already on a place card in front of the plate. There's a seat saved for you 
if you're a believer. There will not be one person that Jesus died for that will be missing from that feast. Heaven will be filled to the brim, to overflowing with people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And this sounds like a pretty happy ending, doesn't it? It would almost be great if the parable ended here, end on a high note, but it doesn't. It has actually a pretty bizarre ending. You see, this feast requires proper attire. We see in verse 11 that there was a man who came to the feast without a wedding garment. And when the king came to greet all of his guests, he saw this man and he questioned him about it. He said, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? He says the man was speechless. Then the king has the man removed from the feast and thrown into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that sounds a little bit extreme to us, right? Why would the king throw this guy in hell for not wearing a suit? Well, let me try to explain it a little bit. Even in our culture, there's a certain set of expectations about what you're supposed to wear to particular occasions. If you invited me to come and to officiate your wedding, for example, and I showed up in, you know, a dirty t-shirt, ripped up jeans, I look like I just went mudding or something. So there's just mud all over me. You know, I hadn't brushed my teeth. My beard's all unruly. What would you think? First of all, I'd stick out like a sore thumb. Second of all, you'd probably feel bad for me. You'd think something happened. But third, you would probably not feel very honored. You would not feel like I was respecting you or honoring your occasion of your wedding. It would seem like I didn't even care enough to try to be presentable for the occasion. John MacArthur in his commentary suggests that perhaps the king in this situation would have provided the wedding garment necessary to wear and this guy just refused to wear it. I think that's a really good option, but nevertheless, the point is that this man came to this feast on his own terms. He had no regard for the honor of the king or the honor of his son. He probably just wanted to come to the feast to enjoy the benefits of it, you know, the food and the music and the fun, but had no desire to honor the son of the king. And he thought he could get away with it, but he was wrong. There are going to be a lot of people who get to heaven one day and are very surprised to find out that they're not going to get in because they weren't clothed with the right garment. A lot of people think they can get to heaven by just being a good person. They'll think things like, well, I know I'm not perfect, of course not, but I'm a good person. I never killed anybody. I've never cheated on my spouse. I give money to charity from time to time. I even go to church. Surely God's gonna let me in. I'm here to tell you that that's not true. That is not the gospel. The Bible doesn't say good people go to heaven. It says perfect people go to heaven. And how do we do that? How do we get perfection when all of us are sinners? You know, it says in Isaiah chapter 64, we have all become like one who is unclean and our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Some translations say filthy rags. This means that even the good things that we do, even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before a holy God. We're like the guy who comes to the wedding covered in mud. So what are we gonna do? What is our hope? Our only hope is to be covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Our only hope is to come to the one who takes our sin away and gives us his righteousness, his perfection. 2 Corinthians 5 says, he made him, that's Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us, to take our sin, to bear our sin on the cross, taking the penalty of it so that in him, when we trust in him, we might become the righteousness of God. We might be covered 
in his righteousness. I love the other parable, the prodigal son. When, when the son comes running home, what the father does is he takes off his own robe and puts it on his son. He covers him with his own robe. When you believe in Jesus, that is what God does. He takes your sin and he casts it as far as the east is from the west and he covers you so that when you stand before the throne one day, you're not just standing there as a kind of good person. I haven't done anything bad. You're standing there perfect, perfectly righteous in Christ. That is what we are offered and it is 100% free for us. We turn from our sins. We trust in Jesus Christ as our only hope of salvation. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been trusting in the wrong thing. You've been wearing the wrong garment for the wedding to come. Maybe you're hoping that you've been good enough. Maybe you're hoping that you've been sincere enough and God will just understand. I'm here to tell you that no amount of good works and no amount of sincerity will ever be enough. The only thing that is enough is Jesus. Turn from your sins, trust in Jesus Christ so that one day when you sit at the wedding feast of the lamb, you won't be there because you're good. You'll be there because he is. And the last line of this parable is an absolutely fascinating verse that could be a sermon in itself, but I've got about seven minutes. So I'm gonna go as quickly as I can. Jesus says that many are called, but few are chosen. When it comes to sharing the gospel, many are called. That is, they're invited to come to the feast, to be a part of God's kingdom. That's our job. We are the servants. We are the ones who have been given the great commission to go into all the world and to invite as many as we can find to come and to be a part of God's kingdom. It's our job to do the calling and it's God's job to do the choosing. That means it's not our job to do the choosing, right? We don't get to choose who we want to come. We invite without respect to age or gender or ethnicity or background or monetary status. We invite as many as we can find to come and to be a part God's kingdom. But the choosing is God's business. And I believe with all of my heart that God chose me before I ever chose him. I believe that before the foundation of the earth, God has chosen whom he would save, whom he would call out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And I believe that every single one of them will most certainly be saved. And here's why that matters. That bit of theology matters for us right now with where we are as a church body with this fundraiser and going forward. We don't know and we don't need to know whom God has chosen to save. It's our job to preach the gospel to everyone and to leave the results up to God, to leave the choosing up to God. But because we know that God has done this, because we know that God has chosen people for salvation, we can have the confidence that our evangelism will be successful. One of the reasons why I'm comfortable giving to this building campaign is because I believe that there are people in Gloucester County whom before the foundations of the earth, God has chosen to save them. There are children of God who need to be called home. And you know, at this point, a lot of people will ask, well, if God has chosen people to be saved, why do we need to preach the gospel? They're going to be saved anyway. To that, I would respond, well, listen, I believe that God knows the day that I'm going to die, but I'm still going to eat lunch today, even though I'm going to die anyway. God has ordained the end, and God has ordained the means to that end, namely preaching the gospel. And church, let me encourage you with this. Revelation says that there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation at the wedding feast of God. And Gloucester County most certainly fits as one of those tribes, and, and Guinea might even fit as one of those tongues. 
but I believe with all of my heart that God has chosen people from Gloucester to be saved. Listen to Ephesians 1. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So why give your money? Why give your money to this building? Why give your time to serve this church? Why give your reputation and the potential feelings of awkwardness to talk to people about Jesus? Because God has chosen people from Gloucester County to be saved from before the foundations of the earth, and it's our job to deliver the invitations. Now, I know you theologians in the congregation have a lot of questions about how this all fits together, and listen, so do I. I found that the more that I study theology, I get more questions instead of answers. But it's not my job to write the mail. It's my job to deliver it, to tell you what the Word of God says, and it's this. Our job is to do the calling. God's job is to do the choosing. So our job is to go into all of Gloucester County to share the gospel, and we can do that with the confident assurance that God will call his children home. I believe that with all of my heart. Jesus will not suffer one part of his body to be missing on that day. There will not be one empty chair at the wedding feast of the Lamb. So to wrap up this morning, I want to leave you guys with a few encouragements, a few applications to be thinking about and to be praying about over the next couple of weeks as we continue with this fundraiser. This new building is a tool to go into the highways and hedges of Gloucester and to invite as many as we can find. We are not building a church. We are a church. We're building a, we are building a building for the church to meet in. You guys probably learned this when you were kids, right? This is the church. This is the steeple. Open it up and... There's all the people. That's horrible theology. Really, here's the building. Here's the steeple. Open it up, and there's the church. It's not catchy. It doesn't rhyme, but it's true. We are not building a church. We are building a building. But nevertheless, we are convinced that this building will be a blessing to the church and a blessing to the community. And I want to be clear that we aren't looking to build the kingdom of coastal we are looking to see God's kingdom expanded in this community on earth as it is in heaven. This new building isn't so we can look out like Nebuchadnezzar did over Babylon and say, look what we built. It's so we can look back one day at all of the transformed lives and say, look what God did. Our mission as believers and as a church is to invite everyone we know to come to the wedding feast. So I wanna ask you, who are the people in your life that you know that don't know Christ? your family, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors? Who are the people that you can talk with about Jesus? You might remember a couple of years ago, we did a sermon series on evangelism. And at that time, we gave you guys a Reach 3 card. Maybe some of you still have it. Maybe some of you guys need to start one. Think about three people that you want to pray about opportunities to share Christ with. I want you guys to be praying about this fundraiser and what the Lord has put on your heart to contribute to it financially. It's not equal giving, it's equal sacrifice. I know everyone in this room has a different situation financially, but we would ask that you would be a part of this so that we can see God's kingdom grow and expand. And finally, we have the confidence of knowing the end of the story, and this should motivate us to share the gospel with boldness to the ends of the earth and to the ends of Gloucester County. We know that God has chosen a bride from his son, 
We know that one day the wedding feast of the Lamb will be the most extravagant feast ever given, and not one seat will be missing. With all of that in our minds and in our hearts, let's give and let's go. Let's give sacrificially and let's go boldly into our community to see the gospel of Jesus Christ make a difference. The worship team is going to come and we're going to close with prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray that your kingdom would come. We pray that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven in Gloucester County. Lord, we confess our lack of boldness, our lack of desire to see you glorified as we share the gospel with other people. We confess all of the times that out of fear or out of awkwardness, we have kept our mouths shut when you would have us speak. Lord, would you strengthen us? Give us courage to speak. Would you help us to be generous with this local church and with others as you have been so richly generous with us? Lord, we thank you that you have invited us to be a part of this feast, and I pray that you would put it on our hearts to invite all that we can find. We love you, Lord, and we give you all of the glory, and we pray